Thanks for joining us for this recording from the Southdale Church of the Nazarene in Anderson, Indiana. I'm Pastor Brad Burrow, and I'm glad you're listening. We're starting the season of Epiphany this year with a series of messages from the Gospel of Matthew. Together, we're learning more about who Jesus is and what that means for us, his followers. Join us as we dive into the good news about Jesus as told by his disciple, Matthew. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here at the start of our 2019 New Testament Challenge. And we're going to pick up today in Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9. And uh, if you have your Bibles open, I'd like you to turn to uh, verse 18 of chapter 8 for our reading for this morning. We're going to start at verse 18 of chapter 8, and then we will skip over to verse 9 of chapter 9. So, two passages today. First, Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Immediately somebody started writing a song, but no, that's not in there. I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, First, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Fast forwarding to verse 9 of chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when, Jesus, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Would you pray with me? Father, it is good to be with your people and to open your word. And we believe that this word is good news for us. Because that is what Jesus was anointed by your spirit to do. As he came up from the water, the spirit of God descended and lighted on him like a dove. 
Later, he would say, I have been anointed by the Spirit to proclaim good news. So we know today this word is good. We pray that you would open our eyes to its goodness and help us to apply its grace to our lives through your Holy Spirit whom you have given us. We ask these things in the holy and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Uh, we are doing the 2019 New Testament Challenge together, and if you have been reading one chapter per weekday this week, you know we got through Matthew chapter 8 on Friday. Monday, we'll start in again on Matthew chapter 9, and so today's sermon kind of straddles that chapter divide there. So far in Matthew's Gospel, the story started with the birth of the Messiah and the visit of the Magi not the birth of the Magi and the visit of the Messiah, as I originally typed in my notes. I got that backwards the first time around. But the Christ is born. This is how the birth of Jesus the Christ came about, Matthew tells us. And he tells us the birth of Christ and the visit of the Magi that we talked about last week. After that, we read the account of Herod's plot to destroy Jesus by killing all of the baby boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity. And the way Joseph took his family and escaped in the middle of the night to Egypt. And then once Herod the Great had died, being told it was safe to return by an angel, Jesus brought them back and settled in Nazareth as opposed to Bethlehem. After that, we read in chapter 3 the story of the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Following that, we follow Jesus out into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil by, the, by Satan, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren. He resists that temptation through God's word. Following that, he returns and settles down in Capernaum. And we read about the beginnings of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And then comes chapter 5. After that introduction to the ministry of Jesus... Matthew summarizes the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus teaches, and we're told he sits down to teach his disciples, but there's a huge crowd there listening as Jesus teaches. We said, we said probably we should not assume that Jesus taught all those things only once, or that he necessarily taught all of those things on a single occasion. Rather, it appears that inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew is taking the core of Jesus' preaching message and presenting it to us as a single unit here at the outset of Jesus' ministry. So we can hear from Jesus' own mouth what his message is about. The reason I believe that, by the way, is because Luke tells the similar teaching but sets it on a plane, and Mark scatters those teachings throughout his gospel. So it appears that Matthew is collecting several different teachings and presenting them all as one. Following that, Matthew does the same thing with Jesus' healing ministry. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, Matthew takes stories of the miracles that Jesus performed and gathers them together and presents them to us as a representative example. He wants to see that Jesus not only teaches with authority, as 
as we were told at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds marveled that Jesus taught as somebody who had authority. Not only does Jesus teach as one with authority, Jesus acts as one who has authority. And he demonstrates that authority by what he does. If you watch the videos this week on Facebook, our introductions to the chapters we're reading each day, on Friday I talked a little bit about the way these chapters are laid out. Uh, one of the commentaries I like to use for the book of Matthew is by a scholar by the name of R.T. France. And uh, Dr. France notes that in these two chapters, Matthew shows us nine scenes, nine miracle scenes. There are more than nine miracles. For example, there is a woman subject to bleeding and a little girl dead on a, her, her deathbed. And those are, present, those are two miracles, but presented in a single scene. There are nine scenes of miracles, and those nine scenes are divided up into three groups of three. As chapter 8 opens, we have a man who has leprosy, who comes to Jesus. There is a centurion whose servant is home, paralyzed and suffering. And then we have a mother-in-law who is sick and in need of healing. In particular, it's Peter's mother-in-law. And in each of those miracles, Jesus responds by bringing healing. Then there's a pause in the action, and a second set of three miracles begins. There is uh, the calming of the storm when Jesus is sleeping in the boat with his disciples and gets caught in the storm. There are, are two demon-possessed men, two demon-possessed men who meet Jesus in the region of the, the Gadarenes, and then there is a paralytic on a mat whose friends bring him to Jesus. And having just studied through the Gospel of Mark together, we probably read that and say that sounds familiar, but if you read Matthew's, you will read Matthew's account of that. Matthew's account of that is far simpler. The stress is not placed on the difficulty of Jesus get, or getting to Jesus. The stress is placed on Jesus responding to this paralytic's needs and forgiving and healing him. After that, there is that double scene of the bleeding woman and the dead girl. After that scene, there are two blind men who refuse to give up, who follow Jesus all the way to the place, to the house where Jesus was staying, and follow him in until finally Jesus gives them back their sight. And then there is a man who is possessed by a demon that has left him mute. Nine scenes of miracles, but Matthew groups them together into three groups of threes. Now, I told you why I don't think Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount necessarily only once. This is why I don't believe that Jesus necessarily performed these miracles in this order. He could have. He very well could have. But I don't know that we have to believe that because Mark tells many of these same stories. Luke tells many of these same stories, but in Mark and Luke, they're in a very different order. For example, in Mark, the, the miracles start after Jesus encounters a man with leprosy in the synagogue. No, before that. After Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man in the synagogue, the miracles start with the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and then it goes to the man who has leprosy and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. After that, we have the, the paralytic brought to Jesus on the mat. And then there is a break. There is a break of about two chapters. 
before Mark tells the story of Jesus calming the storm, driving a legion of demons out of a single demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes, and a dead girl and a bleeding woman. And then there's a five-chapter break while we wait to see Jesus give the blind back their sight, and he doesn't do it until Mark chapter 10 when he meets blind Bartimaeus. Many of the same miracles, but a different order. So we probably should not assume that Matthew is reporting these miracles in this order because this is the way they happen. Instead, we should assume that Matthew, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, is arranging these stories in this way for a reason. And I would like to argue today that part of the reason he orders them or organizes them in this way is because of what he puts in between. You're going to think bad thoughts of me. I've already done a sermon illustration about about McRibs. This is Matthew's Big Mac. Yes, I eat it in McDonald's too much. But these miracles are Jesus' Big Mac. And these miracles become the bun into which he sandwiches, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, sandwiches some teachings about what it means to be a disciple. In between these sets of three, we have two bad examples that we read earlier. And then on the other side, we have one true example and a good question. And I would argue that in arranging his story in this way, Matthew is drawing our attention to the connections between these two passages that we read this morning. So can we dive into that together? It starts with, it's all about discipleship. The miracles are about Jesus' authority. The teachings are about what it means to respond to that authority. And we have two examples of how not to respond. In verse 22 or verse 18 of chapter 8, Jesus prepares to head to the opposite side of the lake. He sees the crowds gathering around him and, and decides he's going to take his disciples across. There's just one problem. We've not yet been told who the disciples are. Matthew has not intro- introduced us to the 12 disciples yet. And so even as we go, who exactly are the We know there's Peter and his brother Andrew, we know there is James and John, but beyond that, who else has he taken? The crowd seem to be asking that same question. And a couple of people come out of the crowd assuming that they're supposed to go with Jesus to the opposite side of the lake. The first of them, we're told, is a scribe, a certain scribe. I know the NIV uses teachers in the law a lot of times to translate that word scribe. The word Matthew uses is is a scribe, one who studies the scriptures. That's why teacher of the law is is a valid translation, just not my preferred one. And the scribe, this teacher of the law, approaches Jesus and he says, teacher, didaskalos. We all know what that means, don't we? Rabbi is the word. Rabbi probably was the word. Rabbi is the Aramaic or Hebrew form. Didaskalos is teacher. But you know that in calling Jesus teacher, this scribe, at least in Matthew's gospel, almost excludes himself from discipleship. 
when you get home today, we talk about it from time to time, get on the Blue Letter Bible. Check it out. Or you can do it there in your pew. Or if you're watching, you can, I suppose you can do it on your computer right now. But check it out. Look at that word didaskalos, that word teacher. The King James translates it master because he is the master teacher, but the implication of the word is teacher. And notice in Matthew's gospel who calls Jesus teacher and who doesn't. As you study the gospel of Matthew, you will discover that not once, not a single time, do the true disciples, the twelve, ever call Jesus teacher or rabbi, with the exception of Judas twice. At the last, and they're both after he has agreed to betray Jesus. After he has taken the money from, to betray him and is sitting down at the Last Supper, he calls Jesus teacher. And then again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he brings the mob to arrest Jesus, he calls Jesus. Jesus rabbi with the exception of those two times when Judas calls Jesus rabbi the 12 never call Jesus rabbi now there are lots of people that call Jesus teacher or rabbi in the text of Matthew the Pharisees do the scribes do the teachers of the law do uh, people who are trying to trap Jesus or people who are trying to trick Jesus or people who are trying to decide if Jesus is telling them the truth a lot of would-be disciples and a lot of opponents to Jesus call him, but the true disciples never once called Jesus teacher. You know what they call him? They call him Lord. Curios. They call him Lord. A true disciple knows that Jesus is more than just a teacher. A true disciple knows that Jesus has authority. We're not here to, to judge whether or not we should believe what Jesus has to say. We're, we're here to do what he says. The true disciples call him Lord. The, the, the false disciples call him Rabbi. So this would-be disciple, the scribe, comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, and the NIV says, I will follow you wherever you are going. That may be a bit of an overstatement. Again, in R.T. France's commentary, uh, uh, Dr. France translates this verse, um, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you may be going away to. This is not a blanket statement. I will follow you anywhere you go. It's, I see that you're leaving, and I'm not sure where you're headed. I'll follow you for a while. That seems to be the implication of this. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you happen to be going today. And Jesus says, do you know what you're saying? You know what you're saying? Foxes have dens. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Just about then, Matthew tells us that another disciple, and that is the phrase that Matthew uses, Another would-be disciple, this scribe wanted to be a disciple but was only willing to follow for today until he figured out where Jesus was headed. The second would-be disciple comes to Jesus and says, I'm willing to follow you. I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, I'm willing to follow you, but first, let me go and bury my father. And we've talked about this passage before. I, I know from our Western mindset, we assume that when he comes to Jesus and says, first, let me go bury my father, we assume that means 
there's a funeral tomorrow and I got to take care of that and as soon as that's over I'm willing to go my dad's just died however had this son's father just died he would not have been with Jesus today for the Sermon on the Mount or these miracles had this man's father just died he would have been home with his family to to a Middle Eastern mind what this man is saying is I have to wait until my dad dies. I've got to take care of him. I've got to work at the family business. I've got to stay here until finally my father dies. And then someday, once dad is gone, then I'm willing to follow you. That is the implication of this. Jesus, I want to follow you, this would-be disciple says. But you're not exactly first on my list of priorities. And to that, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You just come follow me. It's interesting to me that Matthew does not give us any indication whether each of these would-be disciples received that correction from the Christ. Matthew doesn't tell us the end of either of their stories. He just records the rebuke. And we're left to wonder what they will do. Instead, he sets into the next set of three miracles, the calming of the storm, the driving out of the demon from two demon-possessed men in the Gerasenes, and the healing of the paralytic brought to him on a mat. And only after telling us those next three miracles does Matthew return to this theme of discipleship. And this time, Jesus is outside of Capernaum when he encounters Matthew. Some of the other gospel writers call him Levi. I believe they were the same person. Jesus encounters Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. We've talked about the Roman system of tax farming. I learned something new this week. It's always a good thing to learn something new. Did you know in Galilee they did not have to pay Roman taxes? In Galilee, they didn't have to pay Roman taxes. Uh, in Judea, they had to pay Roman taxes because Judea was under the governorship of a Roman procurator like Pilate. But Galilee had an ethnarch. Galilee had a king by the name of Herod Antipas. So they paid their taxes to Herod, not to Rome. Um, Julius Caesar is the one that, that uh, uh, did away with Roman taxes in Palestine for the most part and said send it to your king instead and then trusted the king to send plenty of gifts on to Rome. So Matthew probably should not be seen as somebody working for the Roman government but he is working for Herod, the king that everybody hates. He is a tax collector, a toll collector, some translate this as, sitting at a booth, likely on its way into Capernaum from the beach he was charging the tariffs, the customs, on the goods that are being brought into the city. Uh, as a tax collector, he would have arranged to pay those taxes in advance and then was collecting taxes to recoup that expense to himself. That's how the Roman and, and Galilean government operated. They hired people in that way. We think that in the next year we should get 300 talents of taxes from this area you pay me the 300 and then collect what you can. So Matthew has apparently done that. He has signed a contract, he has bought a contract to collect taxes on those bringing goods into Capernaum. That's a little bit telling to me. I, I, you're probably sitting there going, why in the world are we belaboring that point? When Matthew gets up and leaves his tax collector booth, he's not just forfeiting future payments. 
paychecks. Matthew has already paid the taxes in advance himself. He's just trying to make back what he's already paid out. He's not just stepping away from a paying job. He is abandoning his investments and walking away from it all to follow Jesus. Jesus encounters Matthew sitting at his tax collector booth, and unlike the other two, especially the scribe who seems to assume it's up to him to choose his, his master, Jesus calls the scribe, come, follow me, he says. And Matthew apparently immediately gets up, leaves everything, and follows Jesus. Now, if we were making the connection here, I guess I didn't write down both of the bad examples, I believe Matthew is making a connection there. There is the would-be disciple who says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but there are other things I need to do first. Set in direct contrast to Matthew, who says, I'm willing to leave everything and make you my absolute first priority. Matthew gets up and he leaves and he follows Jesus. And the next thing we know, Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. Matthew has invited his friends over to meet this master who's made the difference in his life. Jesus is eating with other tax collectors and other notorious sinners from that community, and the Pharisees are standing outside judging Jesus for the company that he is keeping. When Jesus says, this is actually... This is actually central to my mission. This is why I have come. I've not come here to call you who think that you are righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It is the sick. And then there is that next story that has me asking, what does that have to do with anything? Immediately following that encounter of Jesus at that dinner and we're supposed to assume that dinner party with tax collectors and other sinners, John's disciples, disciples of John the Baptist, show up. Let that sink in for a moment. Think about the things that John the Baptist said about Jesus. You know, I'm not him. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. All I got is some water to symbolize repentance. He's got the Holy Spirit and fire. Yet there are some people who, even hearing that, say, well, we're going to keep following you, John, and do not turn aside to follow Jesus when John says, behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I can't believe it, but John still has disciples. Some of John's disciples come to Jesus with a question. Under Jewish law, you are required to fast fast once a year. On the Day of Atonement for Yom Kippur, you fast as a symbol and a sign of your repentance. Beyond that, fasting is optional. By the first century, fasting was a sign of righteousness. The Pharisees prided themselves on doing it weekly. Others did it even more often. So Jesus or John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, why is it that, that we fast? It seems like we're fasting all the time. Every time we turn around, we're fasting. And, and the Pharisees, their disciples... Fasting all the time. Your disciples eat, drink, and have a good time. Why is that, Jesus? What is the reason for this this extraordinary exuberance your disciples seem to show? And I think what Jesus says 
is they're happy because they found what they're looking for. Now, that's not exactly the words he uses. What he says is, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Once he goes away, they will, then they will fast. But what I think that means is they're happy because they found what they're looking for. Here, I, I would argue that Matthew is making this connection. He is drawing the connection with the scribe who turned away because Jesus couldn't offer him what he was looking for. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Contrasting that with these disciples who seem to understand that even though they have no place to lay their head, they have everything they need because they have Jesus. They're joyful, they're happy, they're exuberant because they found what they are looking for. How often do our gatherings demonstrate excessive exuberance because we found what we're looking for? How often we sit in church with mournful faces wishing Jesus would give us instead of rejoicing that Jesus has given us himself. All about discipleship, Jesus says. This is what a true disciple looks like. A true disciple follows Jesus first. Doesn't worry about other priorities. Instead, places Jesus first and follows Jesus wherever he is going. Second, a true disciple brings others to Christ. They do not keep this good news to themselves. They are eager to share that good news with other people, even tax collectors and sinners, because they remember it wasn't so long ago that they were a sinner themselves. Finally, a true disciple rejoices in Christ alone because they recognize that Christ is all they need. So what about us? What about us? Who are? I, I think it's interesting that Matthew does not tell us how the stories end for these other would-be disciples. He leaves it up to us to decide what these would-be disciples will do. Because ultimately it is up to us what we do. Will we leave it all to follow Christ? This has been a live recording from our Sunday morning service. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to join us, we gather for worship every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at 530 West 53rd Street in Anderson, Indiana. You can find out more about us online at SouthdaleNAZ.com. Again, that website is SouthdaleNAZ.com. Now go into peace and be a blessing.